Last week we saw that Paul was able to give a defense before the Roman governor Felix. Felix did not find any error with Paul, but because he wanted to do the Jews a favor, we're told, he kept Paul in prison. Paul has been arrested. He's been brought back and forth in courts. During which time, Paul had the opportunity to have repeated conversations about the gospel with Felix, the governor. And even though Felix promised that when Lysias returned, he would make a judgment on Paul's case, he didn't. He kept Paul in prison. And at the end of chapter 24, we're astounded to see that two years goes by. Paul is left in prison And Felix summoned Paul repeatedly, and Paul was able to talk about Jesus often, but not because Felix wanted to know about Christ, but because he wanted to get a bribe from Paul. This is an interesting passage to preach today, chapters 25, and Lord willing, we will dive into 26 today as well. But as we see the depths of this story, it's a lot of narrative. It's a lot of historical facts. And it takes us into like a play-by-play. It's a very unique passage. There's some scriptures that, that are so like immense. We can't even get three words without stopping and preaching the whole sermon on it. And you know because we've done it many, many times. And there's other times where we just keep plowing on looking for that God-glorious truth that he wants us to know. And some of it is told in large sections. And that's kind of what we have today. This next story, this next continuation of Paul's life is told in this big section that we're going to find revealed in 25 and in 26. But really, if I could sum it up this way, if I could sum it up this way, What we've been seeing over the last several weeks as Paul is on trial and on judgment and going before courts and the Jews is we are seeing an example of how to respond in suffering. We're seeing an example of how to use your suffering for the glory of God. And Paul specifically, I'm sure he wanted to be a free man. But Paul, more importantly, wanted to make the most of every opportunity to share Christ even in his suffering, even in his um, time of being slandered. And this is what the Apostle Peter tells us. We already read this scripture earlier in our scripture reading. But let's put it up there again, Luke. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. In 1 Peter 3, 14, this is what we read earlier. And I think this is what Peter tells us. And I think we see this modeled in Paul. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks of you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that while you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We see time and time Paul is on trial and every time he's not found to be guilty. He is seen to be honoring the Lord and speaking of Jesus, giving his testimony of the gospel of grace. And he's being slandered, he's being lied about. What we see Peter commend to us in his epistle in chapter 3 is I think modeled for us in Paul here in Acts 25 and 26. And I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this. That this is the example that we must also have as we face those who would accuse us and slander us and revile us for being Christians or for taking biblical stances. Have you noticed that the world doesn't like that when you stand for truth? When you stand for principles in God's word? When you make such rational statements like, God has designed marriage for one man and one woman. Or there's only two genders. Or you shouldn't kill babies. I mean, crazy stuff happens to people who say stuff like that. But all we're doing is speaking the gospel and the word of God. And we must be able to speak boldly and confidently and truthfully. 
Not trying to win people by our charm or by our elegance or not trying to offend them. We must speak truth. We must be bold. But we also have a way to do it, not for our glory, but for God's. And I think this is what we see in Paul here, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3. When you suffer, you'll be blessed. Don't have any fear of them, but honor Christ and be ready. Always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you of the hope that is in you. And Paul's being asked repeatedly. So let's, let's dive in into chapter 25 and 26. I have no idea how far we're going to get. I have no idea. I've got two chapters prepared. We'll see. Let's go. Verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. What we saw at the end of the last chapter is after two years of Paul being left in prison, the governor Felix was replaced by another man. And this man's name is Festus. And we see in the beginning of this chapter in verse 1 that Festus, he's brand new on the job. He arrives in the province and after being there for three days, he goes down to Jerusalem to deal with the situation, to deal with this matter of, of what's going on with the Jews. And he's also going there, I'm sure, doing his political campaign tour to get the Jews on his side because the one thing that the Romans always wanted was peace. And here you have Jewish tension building and hatred of Rome. He's trying to smooth out the waters there. As we saw, Felix, the reason he left Paul in prison for two years was to do the Jews a favor. To do the Jews a favor. It's all politics. Politicians don't change in 2,000 years. It's all political favors and backroom deals all the time. And so... Festus, the new guy, comes. He goes to Jerusalem. He meets with the chief priests and the principal men. And they lay out their case. Hey, you're brand new. Let's tell you about this guy, Paul. And they were urging you, and do us a favor. He's been in Caesarea for two years, which is north of Jerusalem by a good distance. Caesarea was named after Caesar. You see that name, Caesar and Caesarea. It's Roman worship happening there. It's one of the main capital cities of the Roman Empire for that province. Take Paul from there, bring him here. And Luke tells us that the reason they wanted to do this is because if they obliged and got Paul out of Caesarea to Jerusalem, they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Now, they had already tried to do this earlier, but remember, Felix got Paul out by night and snuck him up to Caesarea. So they still got the same plan. Two years later, they still have beef with Paul. I mean, it's crazy. They don't let some things go. Felix is no procrastinator as, uh, Festus is no procrastinator as Felix was, and he gets right on it. And they can't trust the Romans to give Paul justice. They, they can't ask the governor, give us justice, kill Paul. They know they can't because if the Romans gave Paul justice, he'd be a free man. Because they've already discovered that he's not guilty of anything according to Roman law. He's just upset them, the Jews, a great deal. So instead of asking for justice, what do they do? Give us a favor. Give us a favor. Got a little sneak attack plan on the way to kill him. Hmm. Look at verse 4. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And there is anything, if there is anything wrong with the man, then let them bring charges against him. Here's just a little note. You'll always see this up to Jerusalem, down from Jerusalem. Caesarea is north of Jerusalem. But it says down to Jerusalem. Go down with me. It's because Jerusalem was on a hill, on a mountain. And so that's how you see that play out there. 
Festus says, uh, we can't do that. We're not going to bring him here. I'll tell you what, I got to go back in a couple days. Why don't you guys go with me? We'll have the trial. And if he's guilty, he's guilty. We'll, we'll figure it out. Look at verse 6. After he, stayed them, after he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal, and he ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. It's the same story. Trial again, another trial, more accusations, no evidence. Here's all these accusations with no evidence. It's hard to try someone and convict them with no evidence. And yet, they have none again. Just hearsay. They couldn't prove it. And so, Festus says, your turn, Paul. What do you have to say on your behalf? Look at verse 8. Paul says, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Remember, the things that they've accused him of are causing civil unrest, religious unrest, and political unrest. That he'd be a pest, a troublemaker to Rome. Those are the three things. And Paul comes out right. And says, I have not done anything wrong. Not against them, the temple, or Caesar. But Festus, verse 9, wishing to do the Jews a favor. Just like Felix. Here's another politician doing another favor. Here we go. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and be tried on these charges before me? See, he's playing along with their game. Why does, why does Festus want this? Again, he's trying to get on the Jews. He's trying to get the Jews on his good side. New guy in town. He wants peace. Let's exchange some favors. It'll be all good. Festus knows he can't really try this guy because there's nothing in Roman law that's going to convict him. So just to get rid of the problem and to earn him some favor with these people, let's let him go to Jerusalem and... Let them take care of that their way. Look at verse 10. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If I then am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, No one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. Paul says, "Uh, There's no reason to have a trial in Jerusalem. I'm a Roman citizen. I'm standing before Roman tribunal. This is the rights of a Roman citizen. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. I don't need to go down there. And so Paul then pulls his wild card out of his pocket. Knowing that Festus is trying to do everything he can to appease them, he takes it a step further and goes above Festus's head and says, I appeal to Caesar. Now, when a Roman citizen said that, and they, were wrongf- and they were rightfully on trial, it had to be heard by the emperor. This was a very, very egregious thing to be brought up and to have his rights violated in, violated in this way. The, the, it's not a good comparison, but the only way I can compare it is when the police are investigating a crime. And they read a person their Miranda rights. You know, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If one can't afford... Not that I've ever been read them, but just letting you know. (laughs) You have the right to an attorney. If one can't... You can't afford one, won't be provided for you. We have our right as citizens of this country to be silent. We don't have to answer any questions. Right? And if we ask for a lawyer to be present, the questioning stops. The police cannot talk to you anymore 
until your lawyer is present. That's our right given to us by our Constitution. So our appealing to Caesar would be like, I want a lawyer present. You can't talk to me anymore. That's what Paul just did. I'm not going to Jerusalem. I appeal to Caesar. Whoa. So if Festus does not grant this, it's on his head, violating a Roman citizen's rights. Paul is a smart guy. Let's just say this. I've done nothing wrong. If I've done something wrong, then kill me. But I'm not trying to avoid justice. Let's go to Caesar. He appeals there. And remember what God's already told him. We saw in chapter 22 and 23 that God told Paul, you will go to Rome. He knows God's plan. He knows God's sovereignty is going to take him to Rome so that he could testify there. So Paul says, God says I'm going to Rome anyway. I appeal to Caesar. Let's go. Let's go to the top. And so Festus says, to Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you will go. Look at verse 13. When some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. So some days passed by. We're not sure how long, maybe, uh, you know, a week or two. And we have a new guy on the scene. His name is Agrippa. And his official title is, is Herod Agrippa. This is Herod Agrippa II. The Herods, if you'll remember, were a dynasty of men who were appointed to be the king, like a vassal king, in Israel underneath Caesar's rule. If you'll remember from the Christmas story, we have Herod the Great. He's the Herod that, of course, confronted the wise men and then ordered all boys two years and younger to be slaughtered because the prophecy said that the king of the Jews was born. This is Agrippa is the great-grandson to the Herod of the Christmas story. His grandfather, Herod Antipas, is the Herod who tried the Lord Jesus when Pilate sent him to Herod. He's the grandson of that Herod. And his father, Agrippa I, is the Herod that we read about in Acts chapter 12, who put Peter into prison and who also killed James. But then he died, remember, because he refused to give God the glory and he was eaten by worms, we're told, in Acts 12. So Agrippa is in the line of the Herods, set up as a king over Israel underneath the Caesars. And they were very unpopular people with the Jewish uh, nation. Uh, he was a very young man when he began to rule. He was just 17 years old. And he's there with Bernice. Bernice is his wife. But she's also his sister. Yes. And this caused a lot of controversy back in this day and made him even more unpopular with the Jewish people because he's married to his sister. No need to say anything more about that. He also has a very good relationship with Caesar, who at this time, the Caesar in Rome was Nero, one of the most vile and wretched Caesars of all time. This is at the beginning of Nero's reign, and he's actually not that evil. He's about to be really evil in future years. So what does, what does Festus do? He brings in Herod Agrippa. He brings him up to Caesarea, He's there with Bernice, and they're coming to talk to Festus. Because Festus has a little problem, and his name is Paul. Let's see what happens. Verse 14. As they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him. Asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused, met the accusers face to face, and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the Jews, the charges laid against him. So when they came together, here I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. 
When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss on how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So Herod Agrippa comes in, good relationship with Caesar. Remember, Festus is the new guy in town. He's about to send Paul to Caesar. So what do politicians do? They go to other people who know people and say, help me out here. This is exactly what's going on here. And Festus, Herod, I mean, Herod Agrippa says, this guy sounds like a pretty interesting guy. I'd like to hear what he has to say. And another gospel opportunity opens for Paul. I mean, God is just bringing the people into him. Isn't this great? Sovereignty of God is an amazing thing to come to grips with. When you realize, here's Paul, forgotten about in prison for two years, slandered, lied about, unjustly held, And it's for the glory of God. Not for his comfort. Not for his success in life. Not for his ease. His fame. For God's glory. For Paul to be a witness. To Agrippa. To Felix. To Festus. To all these Roman officials. So let's see what happens. Verse 23. On the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came up with great pomp. That means they made a big deal about it. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. This is a big deal. Red carpet rollout, treatment and everything. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see... This man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he's done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So what he's saying is this. So these guys want this guy dead. This guy's a citizen. He's appealed to Caesar. Now I have to send him. But I can't just send anyone to Caesar. I have to tell Caesar why he's there and what he's guilty of. And I don't know what he's guilty of. So I need some help. So You who know Caesar so well, help me out. Know how to write this letter so we could smooth over Caesar so that I don't just send him somebody that's going to waste his time. And that's why he's brought King Agrippa in. Agrippa, you hear him and you tell me how to write this letter because I don't want to lose my job or my head. Hmm. Chapter 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And here begins Paul's fifth defense in the book of Acts. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. It is true, King Agrippa, the Herods, were placed there by Caesar to be in charge of the temple. It was the Herods that appointed who the high priests were in Israel. So he is very familiar with the customs, with the temple worship, with the sacrifices, with the politics of the temple. And Paul's saying here, I'm, I'm pleading with you because you are very knowledgeable about the things I'm talking about. And what they're saying about me. Therefore, verse 3, especially because you're familiar, I beg you to listen to me patiently. 
My manner of life, verse 4, from my life spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Essentially what Paul is saying this. You are very familiar with the Jewish customs and feasts and festivals and all they believe. You want to know why I'm here? I am here because I believe what we've always believed. That's why I'm here. And it doesn't line up with what they believe now. I am here because the promises that God made to us, that there will be a resurrection, I have seen with my own eyes. And we have a hope and a rock bed confidence assurance that this will still happen. The problem is, is I believe it happens in Jesus. And that everything that our fathers told us in the Old Testament that would happen about the resurrection of the dead would happen because Jesus is the Messiah. I'm summarizing here for you. See, because what the Jews believed is that when the Messiah came, he would establish his kingdom. He would resurrect all the Jewish people to live in his kingdom and to establish his rule over all the earth. The Jews believed in a resurrection, a future resurrection of all peoples. For example, let me give you Job 19, 25 and 26. What does Job say? For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. You see that? Job says, even though I die and my skin is destroyed, I will live and see God. What is Job saying? Resurrection. Death is not the end for the people of God. Amen? Death is not the end. We will live again. There is a future resurrection that is coming. We don't stay in our graves forever. In our flesh, we will worship God, not just in our spirits. There's a bodily resurrection coming. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, says the same thing. Look at Daniel 12, 2. Daniel says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, sleep is a word for death, shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Yeah, we've always believed in resurrection, yet they have me on trial here today because they just don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. I believe he's the Messiah. I've seen him with my own eyes. I testify that he lives, and it's through him that we're all going to live because he's coming to set up his kingdom. We have a religious dispute over who the Messiah is and that there's a resurrection. Because don't forget on this council, there were Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection and the Pharisees who did. This, King Agrippa, is the meat of the matter. This is why they're so upset at me. Look at verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now Paul begins to give his testimony again. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He's saying, I know where they're coming from because can I tell you? I used to do what they're doing to me. I thought it was my mission in life to kill all these Christians. These lunatics who say that Jesus is the Messiah and risen from the dead. I thought they were crazy. And I did everything in my power to lock them up and to kill them. And to make them blaspheme. Like they're doing, trying to do to Paul. 
In raging fury, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Not just in my neighborhood did I want to clean things up. Wherever I heard there were Christians, I went after them. I know where these people are coming from. I did what they are now doing to me. But then, everything changed. Everything changed. What changed? When did it change? When Paul saw the resurrected Jesus. I already believed in a resurrection. And then I saw him who said he is the resurrection and the life. I saw him, the one I was persecuting, the one whose followers I was after and locking up and killing. I saw him with my own eyes. And now Paul begins his testimony Again, he continues his testimony. He just told us his life before Jesus, and now he tells us what happens when Jesus saved him. Look at verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me, and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fall, fallen to the ground... I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is not the first time Paul gives his account of of what happened on the road to Damascus when he saw the risen Jesus. He says he saw a light from heaven. He says it again here. Brighter than the sun. We talked about it a few weeks ago. It's the glory of Jesus that he encounters on that road. So bright that it's brighter than the sun. That's what the glory of God is. It knocks us on our feet. Paul fell down to the ground. And he hears a voice. And who does he hear speaking to him? Jesus. Yeah, the one that we crucified for blasphemy is now speaking to me in his glory and it's blinding me and he's brighter than the sun. And it's at noon, by the way, the brightest part of the day. What is Paul saying? Of all the people not to believe, guess who number one was on the list? Me. Of all the people who shouldn't have believed in this Jesus, it was me who shouldn't have believed. And I'm telling you, I saw him. I had a track record, man. I was working my way up to the top. On the top Pharisees list of all time. And I I didn't have to believe or should have believed. But what I saw that day changed me forever. And it's interesting what he says the Lord tells him. In verse 14... Jesus says to Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what does that mean? A goad is a sharp stick that is used to to poke cattle. So if you want cattle to move, you poke them with with this goad, this sharp stick. So they would move. And to fight against the goat is to fight against a sharp stick, which is just going to cut you some more. What Jesus is saying to Paul on this road is, hey, you who have been fighting me, hey, you have been, who have been hating me and hating my people, when you fight against me, you're just kicking against the goats. Give it up. You lose. You're not going to win this fight, Paul. Surrender. I am king, I am God, I am Messiah. You have to answer to me. Paul's saying to Agrippa, there's no other choice but when you see the resurrected Jesus, but to follow him, trust him, and believe in him. And me of all people should not have done that, but I did. And then Jesus gives Paul a mission. Look at verse 16. He says to Paul, rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this very purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. 
to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified by faith and me. What's Paul's mission from the Lord Jesus now? To go be a witness to all peoples, everywhere, Jews, Gentiles. To do what? Open their eyes. How does he do that? He tells them the truth. What is Paul doing right now? Telling them the truth. Praying the Lord will open their eyes. So that they would turn from Satan to God. So they can be forgiven of their sins and made holy in Christ. That's Paul's mission. What is it? To preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Tell people about Christ. Tell people that Jesus died for their sins. Tell people that they're going to hell. And they face the judgment and wrath of God. Unless they repent and trust in him, they will suffer God's wrath forever. So I not only met the risen Jesus, I have a mission from the risen Jesus. Look at verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. How could I? How could you be disobedient to that, to what I saw? But I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. That's why I'm here. Because I'm telling people to turn from their sins and to believe in the risen Jesus. That's why. That's why I'm here. This is why they want me dead. It's not some political upheaval or this other nonsense of whatever. There's no evidence for anything they're saying. They have a disagreement with me and they hate me because they hate Christ. To this day, verse 22, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. If they have a problem with me, then they have a problem with Moses. They're saying I have a problem with Moses and I don't follow Moses. The message I'm preaching is what Moses said would come. The message I'm preaching is what the prophets said would happen. I'm only doing what has been Told to our fathers forever. And to anticipate and to hope in the promises that God is giving to us. And I tell everyone, small and great. And I don't say anything except what God has spoken would come to pass. And what would come to pass, Paul? That the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. There it is. You want Paul's message wrapped up in one verse? There it is. What is your message, Paul, that you preach from the scriptures? That the Christ, that's the Greek word for Messiah, that the Messiah, the Christ, must suffer. A suffering Messiah? See, this is their problem. The reason that the Jews didn't believe Jesus was Messiah then is still the reason they still don't believe he's the Messiah today. The Jews have some of the prophecies and they take that as their standard of why Jesus is not the Messiah. For example, prophecies say when Messiah comes, he's setting up his kingdom. When Messiah comes, there will be peace in Jerusalem. When Messiah comes, he'll be like King David, a warrior king. He'll be like Moses, leading his people out of slavery, overthrowing God's enemies. He'll be like Solomon and have wisdom and boldness and faith. And they say, Jesus? You mean the carpenter's son who we crucified? They see the second coming prophecies of Jesus, but miss the first. There's two comings of Jesus, of the Messiah. 
The one that he would come to suffer the sins and the wrath of God for the people of God. He would be the Passover lamb. He'd be the high priest. He'd be the temple. He was rejected. A man of sorrows. Isaiah 53. Christ must suffer. This is what Paul's trying to tell them. We disagree because they don't believe the Messiah should suffer. They saw Jesus suffer and he died. And they're saying he can't be him. He can't be who we've been waiting for. But I'm telling you, that's not the whole story. He's coming again. And then he'll be like David. And then he'll be like Moses. And then he'll be CMS Solomon as he rules and reigns with a rod of iron. But what they don't get is what first had to happen. Is that he would come and suffer and bleed and die. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the grave. He is our warrior king. They're only looking at part of it and dismissing him all together. And this is exactly what Jesus said to the two on the road to Emmaus. If you remember in Luke chapter 24. Jesus meets these two. And they're talking about what had happened in Jerusalem that night. That, the, that week. Jesus is asking them questions. They're, they don't know it's Jesus. But then they realize. Then it hits them. And he says in Luke 24, 25. Oh foolish ones and slow of hearts to believe. All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary. That the Christ should suffer these things. And enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus gave probably one of the greatest sermons and Bible studies ever had that day on that road to Emmaus. And what was that study about? The Christ must suffer. See, this is the main beef. This is what Paul's saying. I'm standing before a Roman tribunal heading to Caesar over what? Caesar's going to try me because I believe Jesus is the Messiah? Do you think he cares about that? He doesn't care about that. And Felix and Festus know that they got nothing on him. They're just trying to do the Jews a favor so they keep them imprisoned. How does Festus respond? Verse 24, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're crazy, dude. Literally what he tells to Paul. You are crazy. Paul says back to Festus, I am not out of my mind. Now, listen, remember we read first Peter with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared to give an answer to defend the hope that is within you. Paul at this point could have said, crazy, you're the crazy one. You're sleeping with your sister. I mean, he could have said that. But listen to what he says. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. And he addresses him by his honorable title. Most excellent. But I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. See, he's not shying away from the truth. We have a large segment of evangelicals now that just say, just be nice to people and win them to Jesus. You don't have to give them all the facts. Just win them by your kindness and don't get into the controversial issues. No. Here Paul speaks bluntly. I speak boldly. We must speak the truth. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. And by that, Paul just said, checkmate. Why? 
Here is King Agrippa, king of the Jews, in charge of the temple, in charge of the high priest. And he just asked him publicly, I just told you everything that I teach comes from the prophets. Do you believe the prophets? For King Agrippa to say no would have had been a massive revolt among the Jewish people. And for him to say yes would mean that he agreed with Paul. Check, mate. Paul gives, God gives Paul such wisdom here. King Agrippa says to Paul, verse 28, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Essentially, he says, I, you can't convince me of this in such a short time. I need more time to think about this. Because he's not going to say yes. And he's not going to say no. To one is to agree with Paul and to the other is to have the other people. It throws his politics up in the air. So all he says, you, you can't convince me to be a Christian in that short of time. And what does Paul say? Whether short or long, verse 29, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I don't care how long it takes for you, Agrippa, to believe in the Lord Jesus. I want you to be like me. I want you to be like me. I want you to have the peace and confidence and assurance. I want you to know the love of God. I want you to know how sweet it is to have a Savior who loved you. I want you to know how sweet it is to know that you have a God who has justified you by your faith in Him because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. I want you to know that there is a resurrection of the dead and that if you die in this life, there is another life to come and you will never be apart from your God. I want you to know the sweetness of the gospel. I want you to be like me. That's what he says. Except for these chains. I don't wish this on you. I don't wish that you are a prisoner like me. I wish you were like me in every way. But like this. Again, there goes that gentleness and respect. Because human nature is going to be like, yeah, I'd rather lock you up and throw away the key. You evil man. But instead, no, Paul is saying... I want you to know Christ. I want you to know Jesus. Paul's making a defense here of his freedom, but it's really not much of a defense of his freedom as it is a pleading for Festus to be saved. A pleading for Festus to be saved. Do you believe the prophets, Festus? If you did, you would have to come to know that Jesus is that Messiah. There's no other conclusion to make. Verse 30. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Again, they come to the conclusion again. That what? Paul is innocent. He's not guilty. But, now we have to send him to Caesar. We can't violate his rights. And even that is a part of God's sovereign plan and action. Because if they let Paul go, they said, Paul, you're free to go, Paul. You're innocent. Sorry. Mistrial. Hung jury. You're out. The Jews kill him the next day. You know that. The Jews kill him the next day. But in God's sovereignty, God has already willed before time began that Paul would stand in Rome in the headquarters of the empire and testify about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does. 
And the heart of the king is in the hand of God. And he moves it like a water everywhere he goes. And they say, he could be a free man, but now we got to send him to Caesar. Like, we can't do anything else. And God's saying in heaven, that's exactly what I want you to do. This is exactly what I want you to do. There is just so much here. So much here. It's one story. It's hard to break it up. And by the way, we just preached two chapters. <laughs> believe it or not. And I think we did it justice to see boldness and testifying for the name of the Lord Jesus, but doing it with gentleness and respect, not for your glory, but for God's, and with the intention of winning people to Christ. Let us always be ready to have an answer to the hope that's within us and doing it with gentleness and respect and speaking truth and boldness. This is what Paul did. This is what Peter told us to do. Let us do it, my brothers. But as we close, are you Festus? Last week I asked you if you were Felix. You heard the gospel again and again and again. You know it up here, but yeah. Are you Festus? Have you been checkmated? Oh, I need more time to think about it. Let me tell you, my friend, no one is promised tomorrow. You may die today without Christ and go to hell. And there is no second chance then. In such a short time, would you convince me to be a Christian? Buddy, I'm not doing any convincing. It's the Lord Jesus through his Holy Spirit that awakens your heart and calls you to repentance. I'm praying that you will hear his call to repent of your sins and to believe in him alone for salvation and be saved. Felix had a sin problem. Festus had a sin problem. Nah, you're not going to convince me. Don't be a Festus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. We sang it before the sermon. We're going to sing it again. Come to Jesus. Father, help us. Help us know the truth. Help us glory in this truth. Help us as believers to know how to speak boldly in a hostile world. To speak truth even when it's not popular. But to do so for your glory. To do so with gentleness and respect so that we can glory in the gospel and that you would save some. God, help us. And for those who need to come to Jesus this morning, for those who are Felixes and Festuses among us, I pray, Lord, that they would not put it off any longer. Both these men put it off. As far as we know, they died without Christ. You've not promised anyone tomorrow, God. Help us to settle it today. Today is the day of salvation. Draw sinners to repentance even now. In your name, amen. Let's sing, come to Jesus. I'll be in the Welcome Center if I could help you. I'd love to talk to you more, counsel you. God bless you. Let's sing.